трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Russian Football News Podcast. Once again, bringing you the latest in Russian football. Sorry we're a bit late this week. Uh, we're late for the technical reason that I was uh, up in Yorkshire on holiday. So, bringing in my guests, <laughs> and there's Andrew's familiar chuckle there. So, hello, Andrew. Hello, Thomas. Hello. It's good to be back. A um, uh, lot, lot going on this week as well. Um, so, yeah, it should be a good one today. Yeah, and we've and also, Andrew, we've gone full Brexit this week because we've kicked out the immigrant in Toka and we've got James Nichols, the assistant editor of Russian Football News, with us. How are you? Uh, hey, Tom. It's delighted to finally be on this podcast. And uh, I think we've got a really good week this week, just like Andrew said, with the draw yesterday. It's quite exciting. Yeah, maybe if your if your performance is good enough, James, and I'm sure it will be, then maybe we can have a bit of a, a debate about whether you should uh, be the permanent guest. <laughs> well, I think hopefully it'll not be a Georgi Shanturi substitution sort of situation in the final last year. <laughs> well, let's <laughs> let's see. A um, couple of good topics today. We've got the um, the draw, like Andrew mentions. Obviously, we haven't had the Europa League draw at time time uh, time of drawing, but we do know the teams that are through, so that's good. We've had the Champions League draw, and. Um, We've also got the uh, the f- Football National League, the Russian sort of lower divisions, and James has got some good pieces on the website about that, which we're going to discuss and uh, possibly argue over. So <laughs> that'll be fun. So let's start with the... Um, I mean, where do you want to start? Should we start with the Champions League draw? I think that's probably the most logical as it was first. Uh, in terms of Russia then, um, CSKA are in Group A, and they're alongside Benfica, Manchester United and Basel, and then we also have Spartak in Group E, there, along with Sevilla, Liverpool, and Maribor of Slovenia. So, Andrew, um, who's got the better of the two draws? Would you say? Um, well, it's a good question, to be honest. I'd say um, I'd say Spartak. I'm more confident of. Um, I mean, in the past, of course, two years ago, we had Manchester United and Ceska in the same group, and uh, Manchester United were a much inferior side then and didn't have much trouble holding them to a one-one draw in Moscow. This year, I think, um, well, I think the state of Manchester United means that they are going to be a much, much tougher prospect for Tisca. So um, Liverpool will probably be, I'd say, favourites for that group. Um, and, you know, the, the pessimism that we bring to Russian football, Thomas, you know, you know what I mean. I, I don't know that why you're saying people... we, because you're, you're usually the one who's the optimism. It's <laughs> well, just me. You, I know that's a comment at me and Toka, who can't hit, who's not here to defend himself. And I think <laughs> it's an outrage that you've abused him and he can't defend himself. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I admit I'm taking the opportunity to have a dig at the uh, Supreme Leader. But no, I mean, in serious, all seriousness, though, um, Spartak, if they were to get through their group, they would have done very well. But I don't see any reason why they can't They can't at least aim for it because Maribor, they've got to take six points off them. Um, uh, Liverpool will be a challenge. And um, Sevilla, well, they're European campaigners. They're very, very experienced. But... Um, I mean, they've got to be looking to to get, if they're going to go through, they've got to get three points in that game. I'd say that is probably the key fixture. Um, I wouldn't expect, I wouldn't aim for much more than a point against Liverpool at home, um, depending on how they, they take them. But I think Sparta have got a very good chance of going through. Um, and if they did, then, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, it might be enough to save Massimo Carrera's job. But we'll have to wait and see on that one. What a ridiculous situation that is, by the way. But, um... 
yeah. James, coming come to you, talking about that Spartak group, Andrew says they could be looking to go through, and I wouldn't disagree with that. And what I would say is that because, I mean, listening to all the pundits and basically most rational-thinking humans would say that Liverpool and Sevilla are the favourites to go through there. So actually, this could be a good advantage for Spartak. They can go under the radar a bit. I mean, the only thing is Russian teams in Europe not been so good in recent times. And the, the classic Spartak collapse, which, of course, we're witnessing this season. Well, yeah, there's one thing above all that with Spartak is we always need to remember that this is Spartak. To go from being imperious last season to consistently inconsistent under Carrera this season. And I just don't... Personally, I think Sevilla may have too much for them in the end. But I think the Europa League is more than attainable. And if it's not, and Maribor getting their head of them, it's a bit of a disaster. But Europa League is definitely more than enough. But I don't know whether Fadoon would be happy with that. And might have my force might have only one second, which Sevilla are a strong team. And Sevilla have been playing good football in recent years, but the last, but the, the, the barely got through in the in the playoff round, and they haven't been impressing as much as they did previously. Last season, and I'm all right in. Th- I can't remember where they came in the Champions League last season, but it was nowhere near the success they've had in the Europas. No, it wasn't. No, the. Uh, the two year, the two years of the three three years in a row under Unai Emery, the winning the Europa League is fantastic success and it's un- unbelievable. But I think they were they played Leicester in the knockout stages and were knocked out by Leicester, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah and the, the Spartak, you could say, do play in quite a may may next season in the, this season the Champions League may play in quite a similar way to Leicester. They will know that Liverpool and Sevilla will probably outmatch them for quality. Maybe not in terms of with the star player and Quincy Promise. But Spartak this season, they just do not look the same team. And they may struggle against Sevilla, but we'll have to see. I, I, I'm a bit of a pessimist myself, so I don't think they will get second, especially where they're playing this season. But Europa League, is I, I would be happy with and It's more than achievable. Glad to have another pessimist on board. But, um, <laughs> but Andrew, going back to Siska's group there, you said United will be a tougher prospect, and I, I don't disagree with you. I'm thinking, with Siska, will we see more intent? Because that's been the big criticism over the last couple of years. And when I've been to watch them, I went to watch them at Spurs and Man United, and there was just nothing there to get excited about. And it was just like, what's the point in being here? Well, yeah, I, I have got the same or oh, similar feeling about them in recent years. Just getting to the group stage, getting the six group games and the prize money that comes with it is seems it feel it's felt like it's been enough for them. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's probably a good point. I think they're likely to. I think Goncharenko is going to realise that going for the. I mean, of course, he's got to go for the league. That's his job. But I don't think it's a realistic prospect for them to genuinely hope to to win the title this season. Um, so I think it might be an opportunity for him here. It's a decent season for him to have a good crack at what is a manageable group, potentially manageable group. Um, I do expect I do expect United to win both their games against Tisca, but it's the other two games. Basel would be eminently beatable at home. Um, Benfica away would be, again, would be a tricky one. And that would be the, that would be the key to how fast Tisca could potentially progress. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you make a good point. You know, you look at the leagues, Anita just looking so, so good. Um, I, I just don't, I don't see how they will be, how they will be caught this season. 
Um, okay, yes, they're only six points behind, technically. But, I mean, poor Spartak have been in the league this season. I certainly think they're likely to pick up. They cannot, they cannot possibly remain, on, on paper anyway, uh, quite this uh, unreliable. They'll, they will pick up their form. Whether they'll challenge for Champions League, I think they probably will. Um, but Tisca, I don't think they've got squad in them to challenge for the title. So a Champions League campaign um, might actually might actually happen. I think they might uh, I might make a good go of it. So you're expecting a third place finish, would you say, from them? Uh, if I'm, my head will say third, yes. Um, I don't think they will have. Well, I say I don't think. I hope they won't have too much trouble with Basel. Um, Benfica are the better side on paper, so yes, I'd say third. Most likely. Would you go with third as well, James, for that group? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that it, it would be quite interesting to it is interesting to have Benfica and Siska up against each other in the groups. But the coefficient rankings of the of the leagues, Russia are currently with three point five points ahead of Portugal. And the result of Benfica and Siska of whoever advances from the group could change Russia getting that fifth spot in Europe again next year. A sixth spot, sorry, in Europe again next year. But Manchester United will walk away with this. They, they look at the talent they've got up front with Ibla, uh, Ibla, Lukaku, uh, Mkhitaryan, Mata, Rash, Martial, Rashford. I don't think Siska can even hope to try and compete with Manchester United. It's going to be that that home game against Benfica back at the Estadio de Luz. But third is a great achievement for them. I mean, it would be better than what they've done in recent years and they've got a great chance against Basel. This is probably Siska's easiest group to advance at any stage to any competition, either be it UCL or UEL in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, just for the... <clears throat> excuse me. Just for listeners who are perhaps a bit new to the pod who are coming on just to find out a bit about the Russian teams. Uh, James, just give us a couple of sort of star players that you expect to... who, who need to turn it on for Siska. For Siska, the... But the like I said, I put in the preview that the three key players were, for me, Alexander Golovin, uh, Vitinha and Igor Akinfeyev. And I think Igor Akinfeyev getting the monkey off his back of that one clean sheet in the qualifying is massive for Siska. You, you always know that. There's undoubtable that Akinfeyev is a talented goalkeeper in the way he's been playing for Siska over the, his career and being head of the Levy Ashin club. It's, he's a wonderful, wonderful goalkeeper. But for me, on the international stage and in the European stage, I've always had wonders about his mentality. Almost as if he's, this is something that is on the back of his mind and he's con- concentrating on constantly getting this one clean sheet in, what, 10 years? And he finally achieved that in the last round. And then he got another one again. And that's quite incredible, really, considering Siska's defensive record in the Champions League. And going into the group stages, I think they look in the strongest position since in a long time and Maybe 2009, 2010. And even that, oh, problems. Go on, sorry, I cut, I cut you off there, James. Sorry. Even even with the problems that they've had at the back of the season, with the aging defence, sending out Nikita Chilnov on loan to Ural, uh, Victor Vassin's problems that weren't there last season, even with those problems, I'm actually being optimistic and saying that I think that Siska looks strong, but that's partly because they've got Basel in the group as well. And Andrew, looking at, um, <clears throat> gosh, I don't know what's going on in my throat this morning. <laughs> looking at Spartak there, just the same question to you with them. I mean, who are the players, just for the p- people who might be listening, who, who are looking to know a bit more about the team? 
Well, I mean, Quincy Proms is the standout player. Um, and also as well, because there have in the past been loose links with him possibly being an in, of interest to Liverpool themselves. Um, I actually think he... I don't think Liverpool need to buy him now with the forward line they've got, but he would he would fit in to their style. But yeah, Quincy Promise is easily the standout player, um, and you know he's now got a Champions League campaign with Sparta, which he had originally said I'm going to stay with the club until we get to Champions League, and he's he's done that. Um, his pace and movement from usually from out wide from on the left behind a front man like Luis Adriano, for example, uh, will be very dangerous to pick up. Um, for me, well, Roman Zobnin would be if he was fit uh, when he gets back from injury, which I don't think is likely to be in time for certainly the first game. Um, he would have been, but for me, Fernando as well. I I think he's an absolutely magnificent player, and he he came for what eleven million, I think it was, from Sampdoria last summer. I knew nothing about him then, but he's an absolute beast of a a midfield enforcer. And if anything, I'd say he actually is a player that Liverpool do need. Um, you know, somebody who really can dominate the centre of the field. He's so so important to to the whole setup, uh, in my opinion. So for me, Quincy promised certainly the the most important um, Fernando, and okay, I'll, I'll go for defence um, for a third one. Then um, for me personally, um, Georgi Jikia, I'm a big big fan of his, um, and that's partly because I put him in contrast to Ilya Kutupov, who for some reason I have a kind of unknown hatred for. I just I just don't like Kutupov at all. What, what, um, sorry, sorry Andrew, very... one week we should definitely do an eleven of your hated players. <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you what, then I can bring out the negative in me. Maybe then I'll fit in more to the pod. It be, could be quite useful. <laughs> I've got, I've got, I, I've got uh, Kutupov and Nieto as your, your back two. Oh, God. <laughs> Kutupov and Nieto as a back two. Jesus, you started me off now. I'm going to be thinking of this hated 11 for the rest of the day. But, um, <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, in seriousness, in seriousness, no, to return to your, your question, that's, that's who I'd pick out. Quincy Promise, certainly. Fernando in midfield. And um, Georgi Jikia at the back. Okay, perfect. Um, moving on to the Europa League now. Uh, look, at, we've got Zenit and Lokomotiv through. We'll come on to Krasnodar later because they didn't get through in rather shambolic ways, in my opinion. But um, Andrew, I'll let you indulge later. You proved us all wrong with Gakorin. Yeah, mate, you're amazing, and you, you've got a crystal ball and everything. But um, I mean, <laughs> James, James, I'll come to you first. Zenit got the job done on home soil, as I personally actually predicted. I thought they would. Um, well, job done, really. Yeah, it's a very efficient and very effective performance. I think coming into that game, you trekked a very. It, it was quite a difficult affair because you trekked do sit deep and counter effectively, and they are a solid team. And Zenit had to break through that, and obviously, of course, it was the man of the moment, Alexander Kokolin, who ended up getting the finding the winner, and then again. But it was just very efficient, and it's actually a sign of a champion. And I'm not saying necessarily European, but definitely domestically. If Zenit can go through the season in these hard games and come out and put such an efficient performance in and get exactly the result that they needed. They're looking very strong. I mean, the only, the only thing I would say, James, is that it did take extra time. That's the, that's the only criticism I'd have, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's true partly the second half. Well, the second half was a little disappointing. They weren't as fluid as they were in the first going forwards. But in the end, they finally got there and it was Kokorin's what, ninth, Goal and second, or he's registered two assists and nine goals in eleven games, which 
it's above and beyond the potential that we all thought that he had when he was younger. And even that was huge. Go on then, Andrew. Well, Alexander Kukorin has always been a quality player that um, people with true vision in the game can always recognise. But uh, no, no, I won't milk it too much, I promise. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it, the, the point is that, that um, I would credit Mancini as much as I would Kukorin in this because none of us, nobody, I know nobody doubted that Kukorin has or certainly has had um, a huge amount of talent. A lot of the question has been about perhaps his mentality and his approach to the game. But Mancini has has looked at the guy and thought, well, I can see what his qualities are. I'm going to use him to the best of his abilities. And he's given him the confidence. Um, and I'd say about last night as well, it was a very, uh, like James said, he, he hit the nail on the head with the, the point about the second half being disappointing. And it, it's it's sort of, Almost, I wouldn't say nerve setting, but the sense of occasion. Because don't forget, it was a very impressive crowd yet again um, uh, at the Kostovsky. Um, and the, the atmosphere was pretty good. You know, our man Alex Lawrence was there and he was he was very impressed with the noise and the, the energy around the stands. Um, I'd say Mancini, again, he managed the game, managed the game pretty well. You know, he, he had... I mean, he does have huge resources. So in one sense, people will say, well, if you've got all those players to call upon, you should be able to. But he chose the right time. You know, um, towards the end of the game, Driussi perhaps was getting a bit tired. So he brought on Pollos um, before 90 minutes. And, and it was Pollos whose energy and skill set up the, the winner in extra time. Um, Kranvitter was able to come on, um, help close out a little bit um, in extra time. You know, these are the sort of changes that that make the difference, and that's why Zanita are going to be absolutely, um, absolutely flying this season. And they've got the squad to be able to do these sort of things. A lot of teams just don't; uh, they don't have that quality to bring off the bench. So, um, Zanita, yeah, so, well, I say safely through um, a few scares along the way. Um, uh, so. Uh, yeah, I think in the group stages, Mancini knows how to manage the side already. He's shown that. So I think they will be a very, very strong contender in the competition this season. So I'm, I'm very, very hopeful for their chances this year. Yeah, James, I mean, I mean, they've had to come through a couple of qualifying rounds, but they've still ended up as a, a pot one seed, Zenit. I mean, obviously a lot depends on the draw, but like Andrew, we're expecting them to go through, aren't we? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think Zenit are the second highest coefficient ranked team in the whole pot apart from Arsenal. And they are both together in pot one. But if we could get a good draw, I mean, even then, look at if you look at the draw, the worst worst situation, worst case scenario, Senit still probably should win no matter who they're up against. And Everton are in pot two, and hopefully that would make for an interesting combination between the two. But and that would put a bit of a spanner in the works. But I still think Senit would probably have the strength to defeat Everton at the moment, especially with the influx of Argentinians. And then pot three and pot four, they're looking at Hoffenheim, Colm, these sort of teams, uh, Red Star themselves, who knocked at Krasnodar, are, are dangerous teams. But Zenit, if they play like they did in the second leg, more than more than enough to go through as group winners. But if they play like they did in the first and they do make the mistakes and they, do, they are hesitant like that, it'll make it interesting. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the Argentinian players. I actually wanted to come on to that just before we come on to the other clubs. Uh, five Argentinians at the club now. Uh, just getting the, the list up because I haven't quite got it off the top of my head, but my phone's being an idiot. Here we go. Come on. <laughs> right. Off to, it's uh, Paredes, Cranavita, Rigoni, Driussi and uh, Mamana. So that's obviously going to take up a few foreigner spots, Andrew. So, I mean, 
just just quickly, who are you expecting to sort of be the start on a regular basis and who could perhaps drop out? Yeah, it's a good point, to be honest, because like you say, the five of them, that, that would, if all of them were on the pitch, I would only leave one more foreigner. Um, I actually think most of them will start because the way I see it going, or the way it looks like Mancini's going to pick the side, Branislav Ivanovic and Domenico Crescito are going to be regulars in defence, like they should be, because they're experienced and the best defenders they have. So I, I think Mamana looks like he's going to be settled in the centre of defence. Pered is obviously picks himself in midfield. Driussi is on form. So for me, um, I think Kranvita may be the one who would miss out on a slightly more regular basis because this um, Rigoni, I, I haven't seen him play personally, but I've heard a lot about him from um, uh, Nico Miramont, one of our uh, Predictions League players. Good little plug there. Um, he watches him at Independiente in Argentina and says he's going to be a cracking player. And I think he is the sort of Game changer. Whereas I'm, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be harsh about Kranvita, but um, I would say uh, Paredes and Kuzyev are, are are looking very, very solid as the the two in midfield. So perhaps Kranvita may miss out, but it depends how the, the season goes. They'll probably rotate enough to keep them fresh. But that's roughly how I see it going. And what about you, James? Who would you think would drop out? Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think it would take Kranvitter and we, although we haven't seen Rigoni yet, I think it would be quite hard to break up that wonderful partnership up front right now of Oleg Shatov, Alexander Kokorin and Sebastian Juicy. But Kranvitter is a bit of a mystery to myself. I think he's a wonderful footballer and I was very excited when Zanid played him. But I just don't see where Kranvitter and Paredes could even play in the team together anyway. So Mancini's dilemma might be solved in itself for that. The first leg against Utrecht, he had Paredes moved and then the more advanced role and played in place where De La Cazaya would usually play and Kranvitter sat at the base of the midfield three and they just didn't tick together Paredes was still performed okay but he's away from his role where he can take the ball recycle possession and then ping it around the pitch to the wide or to, to make run, late runs for Kokorin or whoever is making it and then Kranvitter just didn't look the same play, didn't look as able on the ball as Paredes. And then obviously you missed Kuzayev's energy in midfield and his box to, his way of getting back boxed uh, between the two boxes. So I think it might just solve it in itself of Mamana, Paredes and Dulusi start and then the Russian core from around there and then obviously Ivanovic and Krishito. Yeah, I reckon someone's going to be handed a Russian passport sometime soon. But <laughs> but moving, <clears throat> excuse me, moving on to Lokomotiv then didn't go through qualifying, uh, went straight in, straight into pot two. So um, you know, Andrew, actually relatively high seeding. So they could, if they get a good draw, they got a, they got a good chance. Well, yeah, the high seeding is going to help them um, because I mean, if you look down the down the lists. Um, you know, who's in the third and fourth pot? I mean, uh, Hoffenheim are going to be the dangers in pot three. Um, they're, they're a very good side. I mean, I know Liverpool dismantled them in the second leg of their Champions League qualified, but they're an exceptionally well-organised side, not with many big stars, but a, a very well-drilled um, unit. So they'll be a danger in pot three. Um, and the uh, I'm not very good with Turkish pronunciations, but Istanbul Basak Sehir. Um, that'll do, right that'll right. do. <laughs> It'll do, it'll do us, it'll do us. Um, and, of course, Red Star Belgrade in pot four. So there are one or two dangers in there, but if they can avoid them, I'd say there's every chance that they could go through. Um, 
So, yeah, I'd, I'd be reasonably hopeful, depending on the draw. But there's a very good chance they will get a at least a manageable draw. So, yeah, locomotives should be... I think locomotives should be targeting success here. They shouldn't just think, well, we've got to the group stage, that's enough. Because, it's, again, it's the same old um, same old argument that you have with all these clubs that don't take Europa League seriously. It's like, why make all the effort for our whole domestic season to qualify for Europe and then not really make much effort in it? Because it's there for the taking, I think. Um, so, yeah, a lot depends on the draw. But with a favourable one, I'd say locomotive have a chance of going through, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, James, Loco have made a really good start to the domestic season. And if they get, I'm just looking at the the pot one seeds because that could be quite important as well. Andrew's given us some good highlights from pot uh, three and four. I'm looking at pot one. I mean, you're looking, ideally, you want uh, Victoria Pilsen, Salzburg, Copenhagen or Braga. Those are your ideal ones from pot one, really, aren't they, James? Yeah, without a doubt. I think Lokomotiv have started very well, but they might struggle against some of the big top teams in that pot. But Victoria Pilsen, admittedly, I don't know much about. They are easy to pick on. But I would more than back Lokomotiv against teams like Victoria Pilsen. Maybe even Copenhagen, which I think Toka would be delighted to hear me say that. I think Lokomotiv could finish ahead of them. But Lokomotiv's start of the season has been wonderful. I like, I've, I've been really impressed with the form of Alexei Milanchuk. The finally kind of, well, I say finally, he's only, what, 21 still, 22. But living up to his name of being Russia's next big thing alongside Golovin. Yeah, I mean, you say that, uh, I'm thinking that Toka would be happy with the Copenhagen draw against Lokomotiv, but then I actually remember, I think a couple of pods ago, he said he watched Lokomotiv a lot for one season, and it just didn't do his health any good. So perhaps it's best that they actually avoid going to Copenhagen. But um, you're expecting them to go through then, I take it. Yeah, without a doubt. I, I, I would definitely expect Lokomotiv to go through. I mean, the strength of their team, with Ari involved, of course, is helps them much more when they actually have a striker on the pitch. But the what, I remember I watched them in the Spartak match and the Spartak derby last week and then they didn't have any striker on the pitch at all then and still scored four goals in the first time. But, but that's, look, Mantiva scored four and one half against Spartak in a, a long time. I, I can, I'll find the exact figure, but I think, it's, I, don't, I think it's been since the Soviet Union that they've scored four goals in one match and, in one half against Spartak. Or even Spartak just conceded four goals in one half. Yeah, it's pretty horrendous. <laughs> yeah, and it's as bad as Spartak were that day. It's the, the Lokomotiv's play. I mean, of course, I don't have meant Spartak. But Lokomotiv's play in the second half was a, a joy to watch at times. And if you play on the front foot like that and still have Solomon Kavekalia in the form that he's in, the form of his life, I think named player of the month for Lokomotiv in the first month of the season, it'll easily go through. And depending on a favourable draw, could even win the group. Oh, well, that's, a, that's certainly a big prediction um just both of you just i mean they didn't get through but just touching on krasnodar lost on uh, aggregate to um, red star belgrade quite a lot of bitterness about the um, disallowed goal in the first leg which was clearly over the line but I, I mean you mentioned that to me this morning james on a little group chat and i said well should have done the defensive duties really yeah i mean there was there are some people who keep bringing up mihaly oristic's goal this or not get goal that wasn't given last week which was clearly over the line but Krasadar are a team that is a bit more than good enough not to be relying on refereeing decisions and officiating mistakes. Sergei Galitsky will be probably rather angry and distraught that Krasadar are out of the Europa League with losing out on all that extra money for his project. And at the end of the day, it was because they couldn't break down an efficient Red Star defence and relied again on, on, on a late Angelius Glankvi's penalty to get a goal and a foothold in the game. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, do you think that Krasnodar perhaps underestimated Red Star a bit? Yeah, I think undoubtedly, and I think I did too, to be honest. Um, 
because they they obviously a, a shadow of the side that just tore through Europe 20, 30 years ago. Um, but uh, you know they they should have they should have been more like I agree more more professional about it. Um, the fir- that first leg conceding twice was was an absolute killer, and they, that's the frustrating thing about it. They've got the well, they've showed they have the talent and. By you know scoring three times at home and they look they looked I thought pretty uh, Krasner I looked pretty decent um, and I thought yeah you've you've done enough for the first leg and then just letting in those goals it just killed them um, and I'll be honest last night I I thought they looked very very exposed now you, you could say that it was because of the you know very intimidating atmosphere but come on boys you're playing football you're going to have intimidating atmosphere atmosphere across Europe that's the whole point um, I mean there was a hell of a lot of play acting from from Red Star which I mean I know a lot of teams do it but Red Star really did take it to extremes last night constantly trying to wind, wind players up um, Zhigulev at one point I thought was very good he kept a cool head but they just it's a this, this sense of occasion I think overwhelmed them that's how I saw it going last night um, and they did yeah they had a late flurry Grantris could have won it near the end oh I say won it could have um so not one. It uh, got a second um, with that header, which chips over the defence. But yeah, they just they just didn't have enough quality on the night. So I don't think they can really deep down have any complaints about not going through. But I agree on the point about Galitsky entirely. I think he'll be absolutely fuming about this because he's not he's not a man who accepts mediocrity. And um, I'm not saying it is mediocre to be knocked out by a good side, but you know. That's the level you've got to be aiming to be better than Red Star Belgrade if you want to have the slightest hopes of getting into the quarterfinals or further of the Europa League. So, yeah, very disappointing for Krasnodar um, and also a shame for the coefficient points too. So moving on to our, our next topic, coming away from Europe and actually going down the levels, we're going to talk Fenel. Uh, James, you've written a couple of pieces on the website called uh, Reforming the Trans-Siberian Football League, and yep. there's uh, two parts online at the moment for people to check, and there's a third one coming on the way. So um, just for the readers, just give us a sort of a, a quick blurb like you might find on the back of a book. Yeah, well, the Fenel is what the... the the main, pe- the main crux of the piece is, re- is really looking at the problems within the Fenel, and then ways to reform it and then it's it's a division which has been completely unchanged uh, since 1994 and the 20 team single region division which is the biggest division in the world like all the trans-siberian football leagues it's literally stems from luch energy of vladivostok 30 miles from the north korean border to baltica kaliningrad on the baltic sea which is effectively like manchester united having an away game in toronto and the it, the first piece looked at financial instability of the of teams there, political difficulties, and the plummeting attendances. And it was quite interesting looking at the plummeting attendances because the highest typical attendance in the FNL used to be, uh, what, what, in the country at one point, used to be Kuban Klasnodar. And Kuban now have been displaced by FC Klasnodar. And that's just one of the many problems that they are experiencing. But the, the main one for me is the financial stability and these the, the travelling across the countries, the travelling from one state, one city to another. So if we've in, looked through the ideas of reform, the, the Valery Gadsayev's unified football league proposals, which was a proposal to try and increase the uh, introduce the old Soviet system back, but not the structure of the old Soviet system, but actually having a, a eighteen league, an eighteen team league, nine from Russia and nine from Ukraine, 
setting out financial plans where in which each team would receive 22 million euros to start the season. And Alexei Miller, the president of Gazprom, actually offered to give 1 billion euros in prize money for the team in the FNL, which would solve a lot of the financial instability. This, these sort of numbers have never been considered before in the FNL. But just imagine the geopolitical context of trying to have a unified football league between Russia and Ukraine in 2017. So don't necessarily think that's a viable option. And, and he changed himself in 2014 to try and get some regional proposals in, uh, shifting the number of teams in the Premier League from 16 to 18, and having a 36-club division of the FNL, which would be regionalised into Far East, Siberia, Urals in the West, so it'll be four regions. And we figured out that the, this was just, although in theory going in the right direction, the Eastern League would just be too big. It would still, you would still have Ufa at the time who were in the FNL when he theorized this, would be traveling to Luchanergy of Vladivostok, which is just too far. And, but there's been another regionalization proposal last year in the business online, and it was Jaudat Abdulin, the columnist for them. And he, and he thought of, he looked also back to the Soviet period, but instead of trying to unify two countries, he looked towards regionalizing in the old Soviet terms of the six, the six division, the six zone division that they used to have. So how, uh, so how would, would that work exactly then? So it would be the south, so be in six zones would be the south southern zone, the Moscow Mosoblast zone, the Moscow zone, center, and Ural Volga in the east. And the East would still be quite a monolithic size, but it would severely reduce the travel distance for all clubs. So Gazayev's proposal, as I said, included Ufa and Zenitishevsk in the Eastern League, along with Sakhalin, Yuzhno-Sakhalinsk, which is, what, 5,000 kilometres at least, still. But this new proposal would take six of the Eastern uh, professional football league teams, so Sakhalin, Zenitilkutsk, uh, Dino Banal, Shita, Smyrna Komosolsk and Itish, and they would bring them in with Lush, Yenisei, Tabir, Tumens, Ska. And that was it was in 2016, so obviously Ska wouldn't be anymore. It would be Tom Tomsk instead. But, and it would create a, a much smaller league for them. It would make a logist, logistical distance of actually surviving as a club much easier. And I think it's... Problems in the East is sometimes are sometimes quite unavoidable due to the size of Siberia and these low amount of clubs in there. I mean, the Eastern Division would be the lowest, but this seems to be the most sensible and one of the better options of structural reform for the FNL. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, coming to you, you've obviously kept following two men as you do. Bingo, by the way. <laughs> you've, kept, you've, kept, you've kept an eye on this for a, for a good number of seasons, really. I mean, two men, they would, they would be classed as the Eastern team on this front, wouldn't they? Well, I mean, it, it depends on which uh, precise proposal we're, we're referring to. Personally, James makes a good point. Um, I think, well, firstly, I'd say that regionalising the second tier is, for me personally, is a no-brainer um, because I, it's, it's virtually every year at least one club either goes out of business or accepts voluntary relegation just simply because they cannot afford it. Um, so, you know, regionalizing it makes a huge difference because the, you know, the, the travel costs and don't forget, we're not just talking about, um, traveling, we're talking about hotels a lot of the time. We're talking about, you know, the whole backroom staff, you know, it could be anything up to, you know, 25 people traveling 19 times a season over hundreds and most often thousands of kilometers. Um, 
But the problem being that the eastern section is always going to be a huge amount of travel anyway. So to make it, you know, remotely financially viable, more financial support would have to be given to the eastern teams, as in weighted more towards them because they have more costs to um, to cover. Um, I mean, you know, I Chumen in some proposals have been put into the eastern bracket. Um, I personally would be disappointed because you know it's well i don't want my club to be burdened with so much so much costs i mean to give it to give listeners an idea i may have mentioned this on previous pods before but just to give you an idea of what the actual budgets and costs are for fennel clubs um Chumen are near the bottom of the fennel in terms of budget they're about 15th or 16th out of out of all the clubs um, and like most of them, and this is something James will touch on in a minute, I'm sure, they are funded entirely by the regional government. And the budget was cut two years ago in half. And sorry, it was sorry Andrew, can I jump in there very quickly? Yeah, yeah. Just, sure. just a quick question. Um, you talked about how it's funded by the local government. Um, you always talk about the Geolog Stadium, and I have seen it. It's a fantastic stadium. So I'm wondering, mm. was was that built for by the was that paid for by the regional government and then the cost of that has that led to these budget cuts would you say um well basically yes um to answer your question yes it was funded by the the regional government and they own it they own the stadium um and it was designed entirely with premier league football in mind because it's up to premier league standards for all the you know press areas got to have a certain number of places and uh, parking the attendance the policing it's all up to premier league standard and it has hosted premier league football oral came um when they were redeveloping the skb bank arena two seasons ago and um the wonderful fjordal smoloff gray star presence um but the football has not followed suit and the, the truth is that attendances are desperately low. Um, and it's just a classic case across Russia, but it's pronounced more where, the, you know, Chimeno is a, is a city of 800,000 people. And there isn't another professional team for 300 kilometres. So there's no competition. And yet there's still only 1,000, 1,500 people in each game. And that's just not remotely financially viable. And that's bearing in mind when the most expensive ticket is, well, unless, if you discount the VIP zone, then the most expensive ticket is 200 rubles. Um, most of them are about 100, 150. Um, and the only way they've managed to survive at all is by hosting um, winter biathlon um, exhibition matches where, you know, they get a lot of, they do get, to be fair, a lot of the world's best biathlon or biathletes to come to Chimen once a year for the Gonka Championov. Um, and that's the only time the stadium is remotely full. So, um, the, yeah, to, uh, the point I was going to make was about the budget. It's $3 million is the entire club's budget, and that includes everything from the rent of the stadium to paying the players to travel costs, literally absolutely everything. Um, I mean, that's just... Your, food, your just, food at half-time as well, Andrew. Yeah, my food at half-time as well. I want good quality shawarma at half-time, and to be fair, they are doing that. Um, but yeah, that's everything. I mean, just... Put that in context, $3 million. That is it for the entire season for everything. you know, And that's what clubs have to face in the Fennel. So reform is needed, definitely, without question. I mean, James, Andrew talks about the biathlon there. And I'm thinking, is part of the reason, we've, we touched on this on a pod about a year ago maybe, when Slutsky said football is not the national sport. These dwindling attendances you talk about, particularly in the eastern section, I imagine, as Andrew describes in Two Men, is that just simply because... 
football's not the national game there and therefore you're always going to struggle in that point. Well, I, this was a, another point that was raised by the BBC in that awful documentary that Russia is not a footballing country. And I know that obviously it is not the national sport, it is not by any means the biggest sport in Russia, but there is still a passion there for football in Russia, unlike in and most other countries. But but I'm not being funny, not being funny, James. But Andrew describes a thousand attendants in a city of eight hundred thousand people. That's mental. Yeah, I think I mean there's an in, in the blog used in a fantastic resource, which is Stanislav Chudin's football cartography, and just looking at the, I was looking at the long term problem of attendances, and I think there's, there was an exponential increase previously from 1995 to roughly about 2013-14, but that's from the crisis the massive financial crises of 1995 in russia so you would expect and then obviously there's anything there's anything 2007 2008 due to the excitement caused by the success of spornaya with the stars like ashavin pavichenko all successfully performing well domestically and internationally and i think a lot of football fans in russia right now maybe are just a little bit disenfranchised with the problems that's going on with the rfu the continued corruption but mainly the spornaya's disappointing performances and the, there has been a an obvious trend since the Spornaya have been underperforming in lowering attendances in throughout the country but also in the Finnet Hill so the, the leading average attendance in 2013-14 was Arsenal Tulas of 10,844 average per game last season it was just it dropped by half to 5,074 for Fakel Volonaires and I think this is to do with partly the fortunes of the of Sponaya, of the national team. And Russia, the Russian football fans are generally very nationalist in terms of the, they do love their football, they do love Sponaya to do well. And when they don't, there is an obvious drop in attendances. But um, just, I'm thinking of that Eastern region as well. That was the second question I wanted to put to you. Could you, mm-hmm. you talk about the regionalisation. Could you, and we've talked about how the Eastern bit is always a problem. There's no doubt in that. Could you, and Andrew's perhaps mentioned, I think it was Andrew, it was you mentioned that you have to sort of, you'd have to up the budgets of the Far Eastern League and help them out. Now, firstly, that makes it entirely, well, I don't know, unfair essentially is the word I'm looking for, looking for a better word, but that'll do. Um, so could you in fact then, so you regionalise the rest of the country, but then could you then regionalise the Eastern League, like split it up even more so? Or, are there not, or is there no sort of, yeah, no viable this- way of doing that? Now, this is actually something that I explored in the first one. That, well, I didn't explore, but I actually joked that you could even have an East and West in the East with Sakhalin, Luch, and Skavolovsk in the East of the East. And then, say, the West of the East, uh, Tumen, Tom, Sabiel, these sort of teams. But I think it might just give them too much of an advantage over, say, Baltica Kaliningrad, who will probably be having to play Zenit, will have to play Spartak, will have to travel much further. But it might just cause it to, to be too difficult. And if anything, the RFU were not brilliant at working matters out. And the one problem with going back to the Soviet period, where this doing this sort of regionalisation, is that during the Soviet period, you would have... So Moscow and St. Petersburg teams were based together in the same zone. But teams in the Central Asian Republic were lumped into the same zone as teams in the Eastern, Eastern League. I'm not saying that the Russian Federation that that can't happen now. You won't get uh, you won't get say Dushenegy of Vladivostok going away to FC Astana in in this. But if they do 
ridiculously schedule these zones like that, it might just cause exactly the same problems. In East and East, and in West in the East, so regionalising the Eastern Division, on theory could work. I just don't have any faith in the RFU to actually do it efficiently and properly. The thing is, as well, Andrew, that we talk about, about the problem, problem of the East, and actually James makes a very good point there about Baltica Kaliningrad, because you can regionalise the East into very small sections, but you've always got that problem with Kaliningrad on the other side. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is, over all of this, that there is no genuinely ideal solution when you've got a country the size of Russia. There's no getting around it. Um, I'd say regionalising sensibly is, is important, but it's, it's very difficult, really, when, you, when you're talking about that Far East section, because, um, you know, you could, you could get, like James mentioned, um, you get a collection, say, six or seven, you know, second to third tier clubs that could be in one division. But... But, you know, that is still huge, huge differences in the distances being being travelled. And there is no way around it, really. Um, what I would suggest is, and I have no idea how this would be possible, but if there was some way of... You mentioned about being fair, Thomas, you know, about the funding. I mentioned maybe weighting the funding more towards the further the club space further east. I mean, to make it fair, I would almost say if they could get the funding together to pay for all clubs' travel and accommodation... And so everybody, so nobody has to pay for anything. So the difference is negligible in that sense. Um, then that would go some way towards it. But who's going to come up with that sort of I was money? going to say, um, the only thing with that, Andrew, is then where do you draw the line? Do you know what I mean? Where do you stop paying for everybody? And where, you know, either at the yeah, top of the Premier League it, or even down in the amateur leagues? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it is, it's, a very, it's a very, very difficult issue. That's the main thing. Um, I, think what, uh, I think what we can say fairly clearly and confidently is that in its current state, it is not good enough. And some form of regionalisation shouldn't be too difficult. And I, I've basically long since said that um, the way it should be done is not overcomplicating it. Because like, you know, James, you mentioned there that it's, it can get very difficult if we go if we get too technical and intricate in, in regionalising the second tier. But I think it should be in something like three three groups, roughly, three regionalised divisions. Um, I would have, personally, I would have, I would have, say, 12 teams in three regional divisions. I'd make a slightly, if anything, I'd, I'd consider making the Premier League even two teams smaller. I don't know. Um, but let's assume we leave the Premier League as it is. Um, and I would scrap the the PFL. I'd scrap it as a professional division because yeah. the what we can clearly see is that there just is not enough to sustain the vast numbers of professional teams. I think it's something like ninety six professional teams um, going down to the third tier. It's it's not sustainable for professional football. Um, I'm not saying they shouldn't be helped in some way financially by the RFU if that could be arranged, but. I would have a larger second tier but regionalised and not have a third professional tier. And I think that would go a long way to solving problems. Would you go along with that, James? Yeah, without a doubt. In, in the piece I said that I, I would scrap the pay for L and we've completely reform the thing at L and combine the two. And I think that's the only way of making the Eastern Division large enough. If you kept the Professional Football League and then just had the Football National League Eastern teams, that's a team. that's a division of six teams. You can't have an Eastern Division of six teams, so you're going to have to bring in Cheetah, Ishevsk, Komsomolsk, all these teams from Professional Football League to make it affordable. And then quickly, just while we're on the case of Baltica Kaliningrad, just to quickly double back a second, is that Baltica 
are always going to be favoured in these sort of regional structures, even though they are still far away. Because one of the problems with the Fenel is the titled political difficulties. Might as well just be corruption. But the Baltica is obviously located in an enclave between Poland and Lithuania, and it is entirely cut off from Russia. But they are one of the most important. It is one of the most important cities in Russia. And Baltica like, remaining in the Fenel or above is actually key to Russia's national interests as, in the whole, as a whole, because it's a key geopolitical site which provides Russia and Putin an important Baltic Sea base. Now that's not as important as it was in 1945 when Konigsberg became Kaliningrad, but ever since 46 it has been known as unofficially grant, granted elevated status as the. Baltic Baltic Republic within the Russian Federation, oh, well, Soviet Union at the time, and for, for it, it has been kept up since the fall of the Soviet Union. And it because of that, that, that is the only reason why Kaliningrad is the, one of the 2018 World Cup venues. Why would they have teams travelling from European Russia, Central European Russia, all the way out to Kaliningrad for any other reason, apart from its important geopolitical context, build them a new 35,000-seat state-of-the-art stadium, that is never going to be filled and probably might, without help from the RFU, put Baltica out of business, trying to just afford playing and staying there. I mean, their average attendance has averaged out at about 3,500 last season, which only fills 23% of their current home, which is half the size of the, of the prospective arena Baltica. So filling out at 10%, 10% of the stadium is, not, is, is going to do them more bad than good. And Spartak, when they played at Luzhniki, look at, just look at the atten- look at the atmospheres there compared to the Otkriti Arena. They've, they had a smaller attendance, granted, but only filled about 25% of the stadium. And Luzhniki is a huge stadium. It's a beautiful stadium as well. Oh, yeah. But it just dampened every single attendance. And Baltica Kaliningrad are going to have this same problem. And ironically, by the RFU and by the government placing such an elevated status on them and giving them this stadium, I think they might struggle because of that, especially with the geographic location not really going to help if we do regionalise it as well. And then, of course, there's rumours of Olga Smolskaya taking over as the CEO, which I think all local fans strikes horror in their hearts. So with the Baltic, just to keep on that World Cup point with the stadium, surely they'll just go back to the old one that they're playing at the moment. I know it's not; they're not having great attendances there, but that would at least save the financial burden. As a club, that would be the best thing for Baltica to do. As a legacy for the World Cup, I think that would be disappointing. I mean, we're all, so we have all seen photos of Rio venues just completely abandoned and overgrown. And I think the Urania Baltica does look like a beautiful, beautiful stadium. But to leave a 35,000-seater stadium like that abandoned is quite disappointing. Hopefully, I mean, if it works out, Baltica probably won't be able to afford to play there. If they could, perfect. But they probably won't. And if they move back to the old, the current stadium and then make that an athletics venue, something like that. It's, it's disappointing, but it might be the best for all parties concerned. I mean, Andrew, just to go back to your point about the, the three sub, the three divisions there, just on a sort of a map of Russia, how would you, how would you mark that out then? So I'm just trying to picture it in my head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like I say, there is no absolutely perfect solution, but um, I would, uh, you'd have to just simply say Eastern and I'd, to where you draw the line precisely would, I guess I'm going to have to accept that Chumen would be in that Eastern region. I mean, I'm looking at the map now that um, that's on our, um, James's article on the website and 
you know, you've only got five teams. If Chumen are from Chumen eastwards, there's only four other teams that way. So you'd probably have an eastern region, probably include Orenburg, um, possibly even um, uh, Krelia, Samara. Um, I And then I'd have a, a southern region and then a, well, whatever you'd call it, western central region. Um, so southern region could go as... Well, not quite to Moscow, but Moscow north and westwards and the environs of Moscow itself, that could be one region. So I guess west, southern and eastern would be roughly how I'd divide it up. Um, but again, to to be even more precise about that, I, we would have to look into um, which PFL clubs would be able to join this new proposed, uh, slightly expanded uh, second tier. I'm actually thinking about it now, and I remember when I I put more thought into this about when we did a pod about this. I think about a year ago, whenever it was. I actually would I would actually consider expanding the Premier League by a couple of teams um, for one simple reason: that if you're going to have a regional second tier, and let's say we're going to have three regions, um, the winner of each region would surely have to be guaranteed promotion. And then you'd, you'd have to offer at least one more place um, via playoffs of some kind. So, you know, you'd need if you've got 16 teams in the Russian Premier League and you're saying to them, right, three are guaranteed to go down and at least one more will have to go through a playoff of some kind. Um, perhaps it would need to be slightly larger. But then, anyway, that's roughly how I would do it. I'd say West Centre, Southern and Eastern at least one guaranteed promotion and then a playoff system to have at least one more to go up. Yeah, I mean, a couple of questions for you, James. Firstly, would you agree with that? And then just to sort of round off this Fenel topic, um, obviously readers can go and read the pieces on the website that you put up already, but then just do a, a quick preview for number three as well. Well, first, just to do my own regionalisation. Personally, I quite like the idea of dividing the league into six zones rather than three. Once again, that is quite fraught with difficulties with the RFU being a damp squib and utterly useless but I would have a southern zone which would include uh, the southern zone which would include teams like Volonaires, Kuban Krasnodar, Roto Volgograd and then bring teams from the PFL in there and then he, the Moscow-Mozoblast zone which would be northern Moscow, Moscow which would be Moscow in itself and the centre zone should be just south of that, Ual Volga which would be the Samara area and, and then the east which would be from two men east and that is difficult with the eastern zone. Maybe even minimise the amount of zones in the west and have two eastern zones, so an east-east and an east-west. But once again, that's very, very low on the amount of teams in there. And I think one thing that would be key for regionalising is to completely disband the, the professional football. I definitely agree with Andrew in that. And bringing all of them into this new second tier. And that's why I would have so many re- regions, because six divisions roughly maps out at, when I calculated it. I think the 12 teams in the Eastern zone and then all the others would have 16 to 18 between them. And I would also have 18 in the in the football league. I think three getting automatically promoted and then the playoffs. I agree with Andrew. I think that's a brilliant idea to help help the Finitel a bit. Might seem harsh on them. We just need to hope that, that one year that's not Yenisei and Luchinigia Vladivostok <laughs> coming up as well as Skar Kabarovsk with all three in the Premier League. But... <laughs> One thing I would also do is get rid of every single two team. Now, I know that's quite controversial with the development of some of the bigger players, but I just would not allow any of any of the Spartak 2s, any 2, Krasadar 2, etc. in this division. They can have their own league. 
the 11-2 teams and do their own thing away from the Fenner teams. They struggle enough as it is without fans, like say Zenit 2 fans, going to Zenit matches instead of Dinamo St. Petersburg. Yeah, I totally agree with the B team thing. Just very quickly before you preview that third part, you talk about the Moscow region. Where would you put like the Dinamo, St. Petersburg, and Baltica and that? Would you put them in a separate thing or would you put them in that sort of Moscow North region? So they would probably be in the Moscow North region, and I think that's probably the best for Baltica Kaliningrad. For Zenit 2 would be in there, but I'd get rid of them personally. But yeah, Dinamo, St. Petersburg, um, it's difficult. Maybe even to say Nice in North Golod. I know they're a bit further to the east. But they are more northern, <laughs> and we're just trying to. What trying is that? To, yeah, no, don't ask. Trying to keep the travelling times as low as possible. Just a doorbell. <laughs> That's a great doorbell. Do you, do you want? Is, go, do you want to go and answer that? Been here? Oh, no, it's fine. Let, let me go find somewhere else. <laughs> That's fine. Um, and anyway, just <laughs> I love how you just sort of strolled through it and just did just <laughs> ignored it completely. But. Um, oh, I, I, completely used to doing that with this doorbell <laughs> god I, I would get that changed personally but it's up, up to you james up to you fine but um just a quick preview on part three then yeah so part three is called well, well, i will just find my little proposal yeah part three is my proposal here i've got is reforming the trans league part three the eastern solution and the idea of this is looking at Igor Akinfeev's quote where he believes that lucha energy of vladivostok should be in the japanese league Financially, for Lucha Nivea Vladivostok, they probably should be in the Chinese or Japanese league or North Korean league because it is closer, a hell of a lot closer than Baltica and then even Moscow. But just imagine the geopolitical context of Scar Kabarov suddenly moving south of the Amur and becoming part of the Chinese league. Oof. They already went to war in that. We already went to war over the, <laughs> the Amur region. But yeah, the English solution, part of it I don't necessarily agree with. It's just giving the Eastern teams an idea of what they could do to survive because sending them to Japan and sending them to China is just ridiculous from I can fear although I do see why he said it but the theory is is that is what Luch done in 2007 where each team would still play in the East and hopefully I mean, the play, but the players wouldn't live East and the players wouldn't train East they'd be in European Russia so be based in Central European Russia just to minimise flights travel. And look at Scar Kabalovsk this season, now travelling 180,000 kilometres for, for, for 30 games. So they would lose a bit of their identity. There's, well, all of their identity. Attendances, I would like to see what attendance would, would happen with attendances, considering that the players don't live in the area. They probably won't be from the area. I mean, they, they could be completely disenfranchised. The fans would probably feel completely disenfranchised with the players. So my, like, the, the original impetus from this idea comes from England. In, in the northeast of England right now, there is a debate of whether or not Sunderland, Newcastle and Middlesbrough should have bases in London to have players playing in London, training in London, and then returning to Sunderland, Newcastle or Borough whenever they need to. But as a Sunderland fan, I would hate it. It is one of the worst solutions I have ever heard. All they have to do is move, is go for a three-hour train north. It, they don't have to live in London. This is all the, the idea of trying to get players to come to the clubs. That like Barafa Benitez is so difficult, had much difficulty doing this season, and that's where the, the original idea and the impetus of this came from, as well as Luch doing it in 2007. 
and it's not ideal, and I would never support any team's relocation of their identity. But it may be the only way to solve it for Lucian Izzy of Vladivostok, for Skar Kabalovsk. I mean, Skar, when they flew over to Moscow and played Skar and Loco, the fixtures were designed like that so they could stay in Moscow and play the two teams and then return back, which is easier. But they then had to play Skar and Locomotive two games, one game after another, and lost them both, and lost all impetus. It's difficult, but I, I wouldn't personally do it. It's just an idea of one of many solutions. But the and it also looks at the, what's something that's from American sports, a theory from American sport called the Kirkadian advantage. And the Kirkadian advantage is essentially a theory that teams in the East uh, have a, bad, a bigger problem of logistical travel than teams in the West because of the way of flying East-West is a lot more difficult for jet lag as it is flying west to east. So whenever I've, so whenever well, Andrew probably finds out himself, whenever he flies too, too many, maybe he feels less jet lagged. Going back to, uh, when he goes to Man United, he feels, and then when he goes back to Manchester, he just can't settle. And this is a theory in American football, in American sports, that Eastern teams do have a disadvantage. And it's an interesting one, and I do explore that later on as one of the problems to, to the Eastern solution. Perfect. And when, when is that due? Uh, it's due within the week. Oh, perfect. So, the, the only thing I would say about the American sports is New England Patriots don't seem to have any problems on the East Coast, do they? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's taken into account the success of the team. But I think and we're not going to get a New England Patriots of the East. No. <laughs> New England Patriots. I think, I think <laughs> they were before Lucienegui reached that sort of level. Um, <laughs> But um, just before we start finishing, we'll, we're bringing back, of course, the only in Russian football moments. So a nice sort of light note to finish on. Um, Andrew, you haven't spoken in a while. So what's your only in Russian football moment for this week? <laughs> well, you know what? I'll tell you what. I'm going to be. Um, I'm going to revert to type and be positive. Um, my well, I say positive, more amusing. My my only in Russian moment this week is uh, is more on a local basis, not professional. I. I'm not I'm not the most active fella of all time, but I do enjoy my five aside. And um, you know, in a lot of certainly in Chimen, and I'm sure it's the same in a lot of cities, um, schools have artificial surfaces which they rent out in the evenings for five side football. And it's uh, it's it's a great resource and it helps keep it sustainable and the pitches are great, fantastic to have. And last no, sorry, two weeks ago, I had my first game in quite a long time. And I had a bit of a break and I, <laughs> I substituted myself off and I, I was sitting there and on the, the pitch next to us, I turned around and watched the others who were clearly much better players. And I thought, that's funny. I'm sure I recognise that guy over there. Um, turns out, as she strolled over, it was none other than Ivan Milovanov, who is a <laughs> MFK Chumen player. He's one of the best mini football players in the world. He he's scored in the European Championships final. I mean, Spain hammered Russia something like seven one, I think it was, earlier this year. But um, and and he's rumoured to be even joining Barcelona's futsal team. And there he was playing on the next pitch to me with his mates. And I thought I don't think I'm likely to see you know the likes of Paul Pogba playing next to me on a goals <laughs> pitch in England. But in Russia, you can get that. Yeah, he was probably taking tips from you, wasn't he? Well, absolutely. Yeah, he was looking at my um, my incredible athleticism and uh, raking passes to the far end of the pitch. So, far yeah, I'll improve it. Far end of the pitch and out the pitch, I assume. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's more accurate. Yeah. <laughs> and James, what's your one? 
yeah, so I, I was quite torn between two. And I wanted to re- initially go for the Dinamo Spornaya uh, friendly match, the hybrid friendly. But I think that was quite boring. So I went for an, it's not quite only in Russia, but mostly only in Soviet Union moment. And it's quite topical. Uh, going back to the re- old Soviet regionalization, when they lumped together the Central Asian Republic. So teams from Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Azerbaijan, no, Azerbaijan, completely different place, uh, Turkmenistan. So Central Asian Republic teams were linked, were in the same division, regional division, as the Far East. And <laughs> there's just some fantastic travel distances of the teams that had to go to and from. So in 1991, Kobetag Ashgabad played Okia Nahodka, which is 6,127 kilometres of travel all the way from the far eastern Siberia to Ashgabad. And it gets it gets worse at, at one point. Uh, later on in the later on, they had Belarus, the Baltic Republics, Western Russia, so from Kursk to Murmansk, regionalized together. But at the same time, had Siberia, Far East, and Kazakhstan. But later on in years, they had Volga Gorky having to travel all the way to Kimik Derzhinsk, which is about 2,000 kilometers. So it was even 2,000 kilometers in the smallest region of them all. And these are just uh, Astana, Selinoglad, who are in Astana, played Sakhalin. That's a distance of over 6,000 kilometers. It's just unbelievable that the Soviet authorities would think of putting the Far Eastern teams in the same division as those in Central Asia. If I remember right, I'm sure even Estonia had to play down, even Estonia were once lumped into the same as the Central Asian Republic, having to travel all the way from ta- from Tallinn to Tashkent. <laughs> some good, get some uh, miles, air miles back on your on your accounts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the old Aeroflot massive passenger planes, 134 rubles a flight. <laughs> That'll be great for them, but. It's just only in, literally only in well, Soviet Union, only in Russia that they could think of having these teams in the same league and be completely fine with it. I mean, just imagine that if this whole if this whole NFL thing comes true of having an English team in the NFL, well, imagine having an American team in the Premier League and say, like, well, where's the Sunderland's away game of oh, championship? Championship. <laughs> where's Sunderland's away game this season? Oh, it's just Vancouver Whitecaps. Yeah, it's a <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. We will make the chat. Well, actually, James, you, as a Birmingham fan, I can tell you, you get used to the championship thing. You'll you'll adjust eventually. It's fine. But um, yeah. my I run- love it. So far. It's, yeah. it's, it's wonderful. Lots of northern teams and lots of short away games. Don't have to go to Crystal Palace. Don't have to go to Bournemouth. Don't have to go to Swansea. It's excellent. Yeah, but uh, my only in Russian <laughs> football moment. Yes, it's far far distance. <laughs> Say again. There's nothing wrong with those places at all. It's just far to travel yeah, on the bus. I know. Yeah, I know. Well, Midlands, mate. Middle of the country we can get anywhere. But uh, yeah. my only in Russian football moment. Um, Russian football's known for sort of its hooliganism and things like that. It's what, that's what it has a reputation for in the outside world. But in St. Petersburg, when I was there a couple of weeks back, I went to see FC Tosna um, on their match against Siska. And quite a small attendance, as you can imagine. But I thought it was great that there were lots of Cisco fans who obviously couldn't get in the away section, in the home section, and there was absolutely no trouble from anybody. There were people in Zenit shirts cheering for Tosna generally, and there were people in Cisco shirts obviously uh, cheering for Cisco, and there was no animosity between anybody. So it just proved that actually, if you look deeper than the, the surface, that Russian football, it's not all hooliganism. People do actually get on because they're actually human beings. There's so much to tell that at the BBC. Well, <laughs> I'm not. I don't comment on these things. But um, anyway, thanks again for joining me here. And um, 
Andrew, just come to you first. Uh, what's going on with Predictions League? Ah, uh, yeah, good point. Um, Predictions League, yeah, it was going well. Um, we've got our international break coming up. So we're doing, don't forget, we're doing Player of the Month as well this year. So um, don't forget to get your predictions in today if you're listening to this in time, which you probably won't be. Um, but never mind. Um, we'll be keeping the newsletter going. So that's where you'll find everything uh, about how the Predictions League is going and what we're doing. We've got a few ideas that we're going to propose to people um, over the course of the international break. So head to the Facebook page and drop us your email address in the direct messages. We'll add you to the newsletter and we'll keep you up to date with everything that's going on there. But, um, yeah, for now, a couple of tough weeks we've had in the Predictions League, some very strange results. So hopefully this week um, Martin will drop points and I'll be back on top of the table. I love the newsletter, by the way. It does. It, puts, it brings a smile to my face when it comes into my inbox, along with the the usual spam I get from random nonsense. But um, um, Andrew, just before we sort of leave you, if you like, uh, just your personal Twitter handle and things like that. Um, yeah, well, I'm on Twitter at Andrew M I J Flint, and and uh, yeah, I just like to say, keep an eye on. Russian football news, social media as well, the Instagram page as well. I'll hopefully put a few more pictures up on there uh, soon as well. So, yeah, the Instagram page is at Russ Football News, which is the same as the Twitter again, at Russ Football News. Uh, Russian Football News, just uh, simply on the Facebook page. We've got a Russian Football News page on the of contact here as well, which is sort of the Russian Facebook, if you like. Um, James, as our, our debutant, it's been a fantastic debut, by the way. I, I can't think of a finer debut. I'm trying to think of a debut off the top of my head, but I actually can't. But um, I'm sure you can come up with one. But um, just your your social media accounts for people to follow. Yeah. Um, I could even say Dreesy's debut. And a nice Zenit note after last night's success. Yeah, it's not a bad one. But yeah, um, coming up on the site, we've got a, a lot. We've got quite a lot exciting, actually. We have an excellent article, which is, I believe, it's, it's an English exclusive about Jan and Via. And from Alan, Alan Moore, uh, the obviously part three of the reforming the Trans-Siberian Football League is also on its way. But in terms of the other right, obviously we have another after the two interviews with Maxim Kalinichenko with our writer Alexi. Uh, we have a third. We have a third one coming, which is actually from uh, in a collaboration with Pro Spartak again. And although it's the third, it's uh, technically the first, considering the interview was in January, and this is the English translation. Uh, we have an interesting piece coming up on Alexander Kokolin as well, and it's a bit of a rebirth, don't, a resurgence. Don't tell Andrew. But, no, no. Uh, uh, Excellent choice. Excellent choice. Especially as one of the people who tipped Alexander Kokorin to have a disappointing season. Less said on that, the better. <laughs> but the the big thing coming up soon is the Champions League previews we have. We've got a, a lot of work going into getting a lot of articles as much as possible about the Champions League and Europa League previews, taking advantage of the excellent draw we have with both teams playing English English teams and us being, of course, an English-language Russian football news site. OK, perfect. And your uh, your personal social media, James? Yes, that's at James Nichols on Twitter. That's uh, N-I-C-K-E-L-S. And also at Spartak Moscow E-N on Twitter, the English Spartak page. But I... But uh, filling in for talk over the last couple of weeks, I've unfortunately been unable to update that. That's a, that's been the one that I've had to let go for a while. But I will be getting back on that as soon as possible and giving regular updates to Spartak News, etc. Their, their implosion. So, um, again, the Russian 
Football News social media pages. Uh, Russ Football News on Twitter, Instagram is the same. RussianFootballNews.com website. And if anybody cares, my social media personally is at Thomas underscore Giles. That's G I L E S underscore U K. Thomas underscore Giles underscore U K. So uh, again, thanks again to um, Andrew and James. It, uh, James, fantastic debut. Andrew, you you were pretty good as well as per usual. Really enjoyed the Fennel discussion. That's something we've been wanting to have for a while. So. Um, do keep listening to this football, Russian Football News podcast. Uh, you can find us on the World Football Index, who, again, we, we thank for hosting us. Uh, do subscribe on World Football Index. I think you can still do it on iTunes and SoundCloud as well. Still got all the old pods up on the old SoundCloud page, so go and check them out. And uh, if you can leave us a review on iTunes or whatever other format, that would be absolutely fantastic. So um, sorry for the lateness again this week, but we will see you in a couple of weeks and hopefully on time. Идет футбольный матч, летит над полем мяч.